0: You may have had the opportunity this morning, uh, although I mo- though most of the folks were gone. Um, after worship this morning, a friend of Trisha Weber, actually uh, her cousin, uh, her cousin uh, excuse me, her cousin's wife. Uh, her name is Misty Farmer, and uh, her nine-year-old son, and uh, responded, uh, Misty has been studying with Trisha. Uh, for a while, I've been studying baptism and the need for all of that. It just fell very coincidentally, uh, hand in glove with the lesson this morning. And so, uh, after most of this room was empty, uh, it was my honor and pleasure to baptize Misty and, and her son Grady into Christ. So, you have a new brother and sister, and uh, i be kind of watching out for Tricia. And if she has somebody that you don't recognize, that's probably Misty. And, and uh, maybe her son, Grady, as well. So welcome your new sister and brother into Christ and be praying for them on their journey. Um, it was kind of fun for me, too. Uh, doing a baptism is always, is always kind of a risk because, well, I'm giving you a little inside baseball stuff here. But when you go the back, uh, they have the waiters back there, and there's three of them. It's kind of a, for those of you who've had this decision to make, you know it's kind of like Russian roulette. And I don't know why this is, but there are a couple of those waiters that are um, not water-resistant. I picked the wrong one. And so, just so you know, you have a new sister and brother in Christ, and I am absolutely sure that my right leg is going to heaven. Uh, I was fully immersed this morning. We are glad you're back. Uh, On Sunday nights, we have been talking about this uh, concept of unswerving, the stories of faith, And the people of faith, what drew them to the Lord, what held them to the Lord. Our theme verse has been Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Uh, That verse says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And we've tried to emphasize that it's really not about these characters in and of themselves. They weren't anything special. They just held on to a God who is special. They didn't let go of him. And so if we can use these stories, if we can look at these stories, hopefully they will help us in our journey as well. Uh, That's what we're, the whole purpose in my mind is all about. Um, This morning I mentioned, I read from you, for you a story and I did not credit that story properly. I like to do that, especially I'm just verbatim taking it um, because in part I want to mention this tonight because if the lesson was helpful for you. This morning, a lot of the concepts that have really helped me with this on a personal level came from a book. And the book is called Getting Past Guilt. It was titled by the same sermon. I didn't plagiarize the whole book. Don't worry. Um, but uh, Joe Beam wrote the book, and he just does a really good job, in my opinion, of dealing fairly and scripturally uh, with the subject of guilt and helping people move past not only being forgiven but also receiving healing. And uh, that was where they got the story of the deacon— And his son and sorry about them dogs. There's another story that I want to share with you tonight. And uh, also before I read this story, uh, I should also give credit where credit is due uh, toward the illustration. That illustration uh, was an illustration that Brenda Heller uh, had given me a long time ago, and I have gotten a lot of mileage out of so thank you, Brenda. I'm not sure if that was hers originally or if she got it from somewhere else. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, but I, it's been a very effective illustration in teaching and preaching to help people understand it's the blood of Jesus that deals with the sin and nothing more. Central Casting couldn't have found anyone more grandmotherly than the lady standing before me. Soft curves of young womanhood had long since been overlaid with layers of coconut cake and pecan pie. She greeted me with that sweet, shy smile that elderly women adopt when they aren't sure of themselves and ask if she could bother me for just a moment. I noted that smile, but I found a clearer message in the tears filling her eyes. I didn't know what she wanted or what I could do to help. What wisdom could I possibly share with this crying, smiling woman of years who was older than my own mother? She wanted my help, and my southern gentlemanly upbringing required that I respectfully grant aid requested by any lady, but especially an elderly one. So I escorted her to an unoccupied part of the auditorium, scrounged a couple of chairs, and sat patiently waiting for her to speak. I'm afraid God hasn't forgiven me, she said. That's all she said. Through her steady, incongruous smile, she continued to cry silently. God hasn't forgiven you of what? I probed gently as I knew how. Hesitantly, she let scraps of her story escape, occasionally pausing to measure the judgment in my eyes before continuing. When she was a young, unmarried woman, she'd had sexual relations with one of her boyfriends. That relationship had ended, and she eventually found a Christian man with whom she'd formed a lifelong marriage. It worked side by side, raised godly children, been pillars in the church, and now lived in retirement. It was comfortable except for one thing. She believed that when she died, God would send her to hell for the sin of fornication. Have you told God you're sorry for what you've done, I asked. Thousands of times. For 50 years, I've begged him to forgive me. You're a Christian, aren't you? I mean, you're not begging God to forgive you while you're refusing to trust in Jesus. No, I became a Christian when I was a teenager. I just don't believe God has ever forgiven me for what I did. Have you told your husband about it? Maybe your guilt could be removed by knowing that nothing in your past is hidden from him. Yes, I told him. And he confessed to me that he also was not a virgin when when we married either. And I forgave him and he forgave me. I believe God has forgiven my husband. It's just me who isn't forgiven. She explained that she'd been taught that we will all someday stand before Christ and be judged for every action, whether commit ever, we've ever committed, be it good or bad, that all of those acts will be revealed on that day to everyone who is present. She was filled with all terror at the thought that her mother, her children would hear or perhaps in some fashion see her sin. I interrupted to ask what God meant when he said he put our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. And when he said, he'll remember our sins no more. And she simply stared at me blankly. Those verses had no meaning for her. The God she'd been taught to serve intended to humiliate her with all her sins before all her friends and family on judgment day. She'd heard many sermons and Bible class lessons on the grace of God, but she'd heard just as many, if not more, that heaped scathing judgment and used guilt to control and manipulate the flock. The same preachers who cooed grace when they wanted to console implemented condemnation when they felt the need to keep people on the straight and narrow. She'd been taught, chiefly through the expectations of other people, the only way to make up for all the bad she'd done was to be obedient enough, to be good enough, to counterbalance all of her sin with her service to Christ. And of course, she couldn't do that. She could never be good enough to counterbalance, counterbalance a lifetime of evil thoughts and careless words and sinful actions, even though she val- valiantly tried to do so through a lifetime of devoted service to God through the church. And if she couldn't balance out her adult life, how could she ever make up for the terrible sin of sleeping with her boyfriend when she was so young? To her tortured conscience, that was her crowning sin, the proof of her inherent weakness, her ticket to hell. She was in misery. Even if she could find some way to make up for her sin so she could be saved, God would still humiliate her before all mankind on Judgment Day. When she finally fell silent... I growled in barely controlled rage. They've lied to you. Oh, I wasn't angry with her ever in my life have I felt more compassion, more desire to bind and to heal. But I was furious with the hordes of Satan who had kept this sister in guilt and bondage for more than half a century. Nor was my anger directed at just the evil angels and demons. As much as anything, it was toward human beings who had listened to those lies and who by repeating those lies as the law of God brought suffering, decades of miserable suffering into the lives of people like this spiritually depressed sister sitting beside me. I don't need to tell you any more of her story except that it ended happily. The subject of guilt is a hard one. And if you've been subject, or you've been in misery for decades, I hope that you know it is not God's will to humiliate you. And uh, we want to demonstrate that tonight with a story not from just a book, from the book. We're going to talk about a woman who is guilty. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. In the Old Testament... They had a way of memorializing significant events. They often did that with piles of stones erected to form a memorial to something that had happened. You remember the story of Jacob and his dream. And he had this stone pillow and so he erected it. And it said the meaning of that stone was surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Or the story of Joshua as they came to the Jordan. Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, they set up these stones as a reminder that it was God who had led them to the victory and through the victory. This morning, as we think about, as we've thought about this morning and this evening about guilt, I want to propose to you a different memorial left, not at these other places in Scripture, but here in John chapter 8. If you'll read with me, read along as I read. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, verse 2, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and lead your life of sin. It's a beautiful story. There's just a a small textual problem Probably most of you have this within your Bible at the beginning of John chapter, at the end of John chapter seven or at the beginning of John chapter eight. You may have some sort of marking there or some sort of footnote or the story might not even be there. It might be in the footnotes. The question is, does this story even belong there? My particular translation here says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 753 through eight verse eleven. And when you look that up and study it, that seems to be the case. Most scholars agree that this story was not likely in the original letter that John wrote. Um, You study textual criticism, Uh, this is the process of, you know, we don't have any we don't have the original John Gospel of John that John wrote. The best and closest that we have are copies of the original letter that John wrote. And as uh, you know, if you ever make a copy of a copy of a copy, each copy gets progressively worse, and that's especially what happens when you have human beings not using a beautiful, well-running Conica Minolta bizhub, you're welcome, Craig, uh, but using a uh, handwritten method. Even those who copied the text, though they intended to be very careful as they copied the text word for word, and that if there were very small variations, they would often discard the whole letter. Uh, there still came problems, and this is one of the problems: is that the most reliable, that is, the earliest manuscripts of this, don't have the story. So that's why most of your Bibles have it designated in some special way. The story appears in different places in different manuscripts. Some, the story isn't in John eight two through eleven. Some appears after John 736, some after verse 44. It moves around a little bit is what I'm saying. Uh, there's even actually, a, I'm understanding, a manuscript of Luke where this story is in the book of Luke. So uh, it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts, and those manuscripts in which it does appear, it moves around quite a bit. There's no commentary. No one mentions this verse or this story until after the 12th century, which seems like a long time to not... To, to be silent on such a story. Uh, some uh, people who are more expert at it than I am say that the vocabulary and the style are very dissimilar from John's style. Um, I'm sure that there are teachers who understand as we are in the internet age and you know, say go write an essay and they, and they look at this essay and they say this does not sound like little Timmy. Timmy does not talk this way. How did all of a sudden he write in this brilliant sort of way? Okay, well, when you see the dissimilarity, you see this similar thing happening as people who are experts and the way that John writes and the words and the vocabulary which he uses and the style seems a little different. But in spite of all these reasons, it is possible that this hypothesis is wrong. And so it's there and the text has never been removed. And on a personal level, this is not scholarly at all. I just think this story sounds very much like Jesus. Like his nature. I can't stand here and tell you that it's in the original manuscript. I don't know. But I draw some attention to it just so that you know that um, that's the reason that that footnote is in your Bible. Uh, you have some of those things. It's the effort of the translators to bring as much accuracy as they can to the Word of God. As they bring it into that particular translation, most translators have, other than those who you know just paraphrase it, and they're, they're saying and they tell you that. we're not looking for word-for-word for word, uh, translation here in accuracy. What we're looking for is a, a, give you the gist of it, give you an idea of it. But most translations, I believe in sincerity, when you read the footnotes at the beginning of your Bible, they'll tell you, we desire to get it as accurate as possible. And because it's a different language, there's going to be some variation. And there's going to be some variation in the manuscripts, so they tell you that. In my opinion, only my opinion, doesn't make it any less true. I don't see anything that Jesus teaches or that Jesus does that's incongruent with the other things that we know that are true, that are in the Word. Um, but you really have to make that decision for yourself. And if you're a textual scholar and you want to debate it, I am busy doing something else, I'm sure. Number 2 the context of the story if we just run with it as it is found in most translations Jesus is in a major valley and this is interesting to me because i you know Jesus was just having a, a he was just in a dark weak bad spot um, if you look at the context in John chapter 6 verse 66 he says if you if you want to uh, Follow me, you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And many of his disciples said, "Eh, I don't know about that. And John 6, 6, 6, verse 66 says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In chapter 7, verse 1, John writes that there was a bounty on his head. After Jesus went around in Galilee purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were waiting to take his life. He was a pretty hated guy. By many folks in verse five, we know that his brothers have had deserted him, at least the very least, they did not believe him, whether or not they were following him. We're not sure, but they they were not believing what he had said. Verse 20 says that Jesus, somebody kind of thought he was a little crazy. You're demon possessed. The crowd answered who is trying to kill you like you know they, they pick on Jesus for uh, some things so he's really at a down point this is not you know at a time when Jesus is doing a great number of miracles and a great number of people are coming to him quite the opposite so he goes off for a night of prayer which i i think is very much like Jesus and i think he did that on the good times too he comes back and he begins teaching and he teaches this lesson That was not one I think he intended to teach, but one which he was led to. And the truth is, it's a trap. Verse 3 and 4, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Okay, which seems like a completely... Cruel way to make it to trap Jesus, to test him, to use literally use a human being uh, in the absolute center of guilt and shame, caught in the act, and to to use her as a ploy. We'll talk about that in a second. They're trying. I mean, they don't care about the woman. She's just collateral damage. She is is just a, a pawn in their game. But. If you can imagine a sin like adultery, whether you've committed it or whether you have been the victim of it, can you imagine then one caught being brought, I mean, the story I read at the beginning, uh, she wasn't committing adultery, she was committing fornication, but that was her fear was that she might be in a crowd of her friends and family and you know, up it goes on the big screen. This woman in John chapter 7 is living that out. They are using her in a horribly cruel way. Technically, they are correct. The seventh commandment is Exodus chapter 20. You shall not commit adultery. And Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, God used adultery in the life of a prophet. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So adultery was a sin that was of course known to be wrong in the law and it was one that God continually accused rightfully so Israel of partaking not always physical adultery but spiritual adultery. Um, which by the way, I mean we're told in the New Testament, you know, friendship with the world is being an enemy of God. We can commit it spiritual adultery in the same way that they did. The crowd is convicting her of death and she deserved it according to the law. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says this, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So she was worthy of death. My question is, where's the dude? Because if they were that concerned about the law, both of them were guilty, and both of them deserving death. So that shows us that though they say this is a question about the law, and of course Jesus knew this very well because he wrote the law, it wasn't really about that. Sometimes the things that people bring up are never really about the thing. It's a bigger thing behind the thing. That's my very uh, well-thought-out argument. Sometimes it's just a thing. A trap set for Jesus now here's the trap um, they say uh, verse uh, the law of Moses verse five commanded us to stone such women now what do you say so they need him to pick here and this is one of those you know uh, it's it's not going to go well whichever one you choose you pick uh, Yes, do what Moses' law says. Then they, are, of course, are going to run to the Roman officials and say, hey, this Jesus guy is telling us to to rebel against your law, ignore your laws, and do and follow what Moses said. You want to deal with that? Yeah, Rome wants to deal with that. But if he said, well, I know this is what Moses said, but we're not going to do that, then they can go to the people and say, look, this guy doesn't believe in the law. He's not worried about following Moses. He's just causing trouble. He's just leading a rebellion. He's a heretic. So they've got him between a, a rock and a hard place. And this is not a hypothetical. A woman's life hangs in the balance to press the decision even more. If you don't think that's so bad, you need to understand that a stoning, horrific, Horrific way to die. It's still practiced in some countries in the Middle East. You don't hear much about it, but it is still practiced. You take someone who's guilty, and most often you bury them up to their waist so that they're unable to move. And they're surrounded, and if there's a witness to the crime, they're supposed to cast the first stones. They will do that, and as they cast those stones... The the victim will instinctively, you know, preserve themselves by holding up their hands and their arms to protect their face and their head. Uh, The stones will hit at various places. They will hit all over the body, creating instantly pools of blood under the skin, bruising. And those bruises will get bigger and bigger until they will break open. It becomes bloody. Muscles are torn Bones are broken as more and more stones hit the body. uh, Some people will go into shock just from the the pain and the loss of blood. Eventually, they have no longer the strength to hold up their arms and cannot protect their head. And almost mercifully, someone will finally throw a, a stone at their head. And if they're lucky, we'll knock them out. But oftentimes, it takes more than one. I go through that so that you know that this is more than a rock and a hard place. It's a woman's life hanging in the balance, depending on the very answer that Jesus gave. And Jesus replied, I choose both. I choose both justice and mercy. Verse 6 through 11, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with the fingers, skipping down to verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, then neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. Ever wonder what Jesus wrote in verse 6? Yeah, lots of scholars have too. And uh, just one of those beautiful mysteries that we may never know or Maybe we'll know someday if Jesus reveals it to us on the other side. I personally just think he was just trying to make him sweat just a little bit. Some commentators have speculated that he was writing names of of those who were accusing her and perhaps writing their sins beside that. That makes for a good story. We just can't verify any of it. They wanted justice. They wanted to stone her. That's what the stone represented. And Jesus said, go ahead, give her justice if you are without sin. Now, the only one here in the story, of course, we know, is Jesus. He's the only one that could have stoned her. He's the only one without sin. And he showed her mercy. You say, this sounds like a story of mercy to me. This doesn't sound like a story of justice. Oh, it very much is. Jesus is her justice. Justice and and mercy sometimes... Go hand in hand, especially through the story of the gospel. As she is standing there wondering after Jesus puts this answer, <laughs> she's got a man. I man, I hope everybody's feeling pretty sinful in this circle because otherwise it's going to be bad. What, what must she have been thinking as Jesus leaves her life in their hands? She awaits their response. And they award her mercy only by conviction, perhaps of their own sin, understanding that at some point or another, they have probably broken the very same law. Worthy of the same death. Ezekiel 18.20 says, the soul who sins is the one who will die. We all realize that. The New Testament version of that is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But Romans 3.24 reminds us that we are justified freely by His grace that came through Jesus Christ. Jesus did not condone her sin, but He did withhold condemnation. Isn't that beautiful? That's a hard balance to find sometimes. To not condone sin while also withholding condemnation. People can get nervous at that because they think, well, if we don't condemn sin properly as we should, then we're just condoning it. We're just giving people a license to do whatever they wish. Jesus did it perfectly. I'm trying to learn how to do it. I think the older you get as a Christian, the better you get at understanding the ability to not condone sin while withholding condemnation. It's what Jesus did. Well, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He calls her to repentance. Okay, He calls her out of that. Sometimes people don't come to repentance on their own. And in speaking the truth in love, we as the church, gently, humbly, faithfully, with perseverance, must not give up on other people, but always... Call them to repent. Call them to the conviction of their sin. And when they come to that understanding, say, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And live free in Jesus. Don't you know that that woman's life was changed? The scripture doesn't say that, but I know that it, be to, it to be true. Because when you show them that kind of mercy... When you're shown that kind of mercy, uh, it's the only the very hardest of hearts who cannot walk away unchanged. Well, the lessons for us are multiple. I chose out four. Um, you can choose more when you decide to preach a sermon. Remember the memorials on that in all throughout Bible history. When the children of Israel came upon this stone memorial, they'd be reminded of something that God did. And in my opinion, that day, surrounded by a circle of stones, Jesus, with this woman caught in adultery, maybe didn't start the day intending to, but certainly created a memorial. I wonder, after that whole event transpired, if anyone bothered to pick those rocks back up. I wonder if they just left them there. I'd like to think they did. I'd like to think that it was a testimony and a memorial to what God has done for us through Jesus. That he could have condemned us, that he had every right to give us justice. But because he loved us, he gave us mercy. One, sin always brings trouble. There's just no disputing that. Whether it's the very first sin in the garden the sin you're struggling with right now. It's just a stone dropped in a pond. Uh, At teen camp, we had this beautiful lake where most of the baptisms took place. And during the afternoon, some of the kids like to go out there and throw rocks in there. And I always think about how much of a ripple effect sin has in their lives, in our lives. It has a ripple effect in churches. It has a ripple effect in families. When you... Are in ministry, you see that firsthand so much. And I want to say to you tonight, please don't sin. I know it's tempting. I know that the enemy has every reason in the world and he's working on you. But can I speak truthfully from your heart, from my heart to your heart, and that is that it will only cause you trouble. It will only cause your family trouble and heartache may cause you trouble eternally. Your best is just to stay away. That's a simple lesson, but one we need to be reminded. Number two, dropping stones beats throwing them. Jesus was the only one, as we said in the story, who could condemn or forgive. And he chose to forgive. John 3, verse 16 is the verse that you probably know. But John... 3 verse 17 is the verse that I hope you'll also remember. For God did not send his son to save the world, uh, to condemn the world, rather, uh, but to save the world through him. The whole purpose in God bringing Jesus to earth to minister for three years, to live for 33 years, is so that he might be able to forgive you. He wants to that much. Number, number three, Jesus desires mercy over sacrifice. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, as Jesus was hanging around with people of bad reputation, sinners and tax collectors, people were giving him a hard time with it. Hey, aren't you supposed to be a religious leader? What are you doing hanging out with these people? And Jesus says, I love how he says this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call, not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus did come to call sinners. Uh, And by the way, you and I are part of that group. And he called us out of that. That's what the church is, the called out. And he has more people in this world that he loves just as much as he loves you. And he needs to call them too. So may we not forget that. And number four, repentance saves from sin, saves us from repetition of sin. Repentance from sin saves us from repetition of sin. Well, I'm not sure what you need to leave behind. Maybe you just (laughs) simply need to let go of some stones, stop being so quick to condemn, start showing a bit more mercy. Or maybe you need to start your journey with Christ, as Misty and her son Grady did tonight, earlier this morning. Or maybe you're in sin and you're loaded down with a terrible amount of guilt and sorrow and a number of consequences that you either will have or are facing or will face. <clears throat> tonight, you have a choice. You can let all that go and let Jesus forgive you. He doesn't desire to condemn you. But you need to go and you need to leave your life of sin. If you need to begin your journey with him, or if you're struggling in your journey with him, come let us help you. I'll meet you down front if you have a need, as together we stand and sing.